Let's pray together. Father, would you send your spirit this morning in power that we would behold the Lamb of God. We would see him and that he would captivate our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. May be seated. Well, good morning again to all of you. If you have a Bible with you or in front of you, I invite you to turn with me once again to the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. And this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18. When we get to verse 12 this morning, Paul is now finished with his opening greeting. He's finished with his opening prayer. And as we've seen, he used both of those, his greeting and his prayer, to remind the church then and now of the absolute fundamental power of the gospel. And now he's ready to get into more of the substance of his letter. The way Paul begins today, it's interesting. In verse 12, it almost seems for a second like Paul might actually talk about himself. It almost seems like he's going to give an update on how he's doing personally. After all, that was sort of the reason why he was asked to write the church in Philippi a letter. They were worried about him. He was in prison. I would think that you would be worried if you found out one of your pastors was in prison. At least I hope you would be worried if you found out. <laughs> You'd wonder, what, how's he doing? Has he, is he surviving? Is he, is he suffering? Is he keeping his head up? And so for a moment, it almost seems like Paul is going to give a normal introduction in the normal way that a normal person would do it. Because the way he starts off verse 12 was the normal entry into a normal personal update. I want you to know, brothers. Okay, so the church in Philippi is hearing this and they're thinking, okay, good. Here comes the personal stuff. Stuff about Paul, how he's doing, how he's feeling, how he's managing to get through um, imprisonment. I want you to know, brothers, dot, 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 get ready for the personal update, not so much. Paul immediately changes the subject. He immediately takes the focus off of him. He turns the attention off of himself and how he's doing and turns the attention onto, once again, the only thing that matters. He's a genius. Paul uses every instance, every literary device, every opportunity he can to highlight this one thing and then to underline it and then to bold it and then to draw a a bright red circle around it and then to put it on a flashing billboard so bright that the church in Philippi and supposedly the church in Fairfax can't miss this message. He's saying the only thing that matters is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. That's the only thing that matters, Paul is saying. And under the guise here of giving a personal update to the church in Philippi that was worried about him, he basically says, church, you only have one agenda. You only have one overriding agenda. This agenda drives all other agendas. When you suffer or when you succeed, when you're opposed or even when you're in power, Whatever the circumstance, whoever you are, wherever you are, there's only one thing that matters, the advance of the gospel, the advance of the gospel. From our text this morning here in verses 12 through 18, we see three things that will happen, three things that the church will see as the gospel advances. And the first thing we see as the gospel advances is that it reverses the designs of the enemy. Verse 12, Paul writes, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it, the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest, get this, that my imprisonment is for Christ. 
It's amazing. Paul says, you want to know how I'm doing? Here's how I'm doing. The gospel is advancing. You want a personal update? Here's a personal update. The gospel is advancing. Paul had been put in prison. The exact reason we don't know. The exact location we also don't know. But we do know that he was in prison. And we do know that the desired effect of his imprisonment by whomever had put him there was basically to shut him up. To stop the momentum of the movement he was helping to launch around the reason. To stop the ruckus, if that was a word in Bible times. The ruckus that Paul was causing. He was in chains so that he and so that his message would be hindered. But the gospel reverses the designs of the enemy. The gospel can't be hindered. One of the key words here, if you've got verse 12 in front of you, is the word really. Paul says that what happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. The word really there could also be translated rather. Rather. Show me a place where the gospel is advancing and I'll show you a place full of rathers. According to human logic, this should have resulted in this. But according to the power of the gospel, this results in that. Or according to the designs of Satan, this results in this. But according to the power of the gospel, this results in that. Our God is the master reverser, isn't he? Our God is the author and the finisher. And I love how Psalm 115.3 puts it. It says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Gospel reverses the designs of the enemy. Gospel produces rathers. Paul encourages the church that the gospel can't be hindered. And he tells them that his imprisonment, this is amazing, his imprisonment has actually not been a hindrance. I love how he does this, by the way. I love how Paul does this. He does it by making what's sort of a funny play on words in Greek. And so here's my chance. I think I'll play this card once every few years, okay? It's my chance to now impress all of you with my knowledge of Greek. Are you ready to be impressed this morning, everybody? Okay, great. They weren't as ready at 745. You're more ready to be. In Greek, the word for hindrance is proskope, with an S sound, proskope. The word for advance is prokope, very similar sounding words. Hindrance, proskope, advance, prokope. You would think that for a preacher, for a preacher of the gospel to be in chains, to be locked up where he can't get out and speak anywhere, you would think that for a preacher, imprisonment would be quite a proskope. He says, no, what has happened to me has been a prokope. It's amazing. Not only does he write with encouragement from prison, with confidence from prison, with affection from prison, he also writes with kind of a quirky Greek humor from prison. Isn't Paul hilarious? Um, I can tell you all just love jokes revolving around Greek wordplay, so I'll just, I'll use more of them then. Um, the gospel can't be hindered. What the devil intends to be a hindrance, God reverses into an advance. The gospel looks at a hindrance and says, ha, rather an advance. 
The gospel can't be hindered and also the gospel can't be contained. Back into verse 13, Paul says, it, meaning the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and do all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Just think for a minute how brilliant God is. That he uses Paul's imprisonment to get Paul into prison so that Paul can then preach to the most elite Roman soldiers on the face of the earth. This was Caesar's own elite special force, the imperial guard. And once Paul is in that position, he's like a a Trojan horse with the gospel loaded up in him. And what's he do? He preaches. (laughs) And he spreads the gospel behind enemy lines, so to speak. And isn't it just like God? He's amazing. God's amazing. Not just does he reverse the design of the enemy, but he actually actually uses the design of the enemy so that when the soldiers look at Paul and they see his chains, they don't look at the chains and see evidence of Caesar's power. They look at the chains and see evidence of Christ's power. Isn't that amazing? How God uses a barrier to remove a barrier. Who else can do this but our mighty God? God used a sign of Caesar's power to display Christ's power. So I wonder for you personally, and for me personally, and for us corporately, what are those things that are really, truly difficult things? Hindrances, barriers, that are things that are really quite difficult. But that God... In his sovereign power, God, in his sovereign rathers, will use for the advance of the gospel. Gospel can't be contained. This is the first thing the church will see as the gospel advances. It reverses the designs of the enemy. Second, it emboldens the word of our testimony. It emboldens the word of our testimony. Verse 14, Paul writes, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord, by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. They've become confident in the Lord, and they're much more bold to speak the word without fear. So let's think about this for a minute, about confidence in the church, confidence in the gospel. For some reason, some strange reason, I guess this is the way my my weird brain works. When I was pondering this verse earlier in the week, I couldn't help but think of uh, the old bulletin bloopers. I don't know if you've ever seen these bulletin bloopers that take church typos and misprints and are just absolutely hilarious. We've never had any of them here, I'm sure. Um, but there's this one, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. It says, um, uh, like, um, Martha Belch, a missionary from Kenya, will be with us this week at our missions dinner. Come here, Martha Belch, all the way from Africa. <laughs> Christians can be loud. Christians can find a megaphone. Christians can amplify their volume. We've all known or sometimes been Christians like this who just get loud. The gospel doesn't amplify necessarily our loudness. The gospel amplifies confidence. There's a difference there, and it's a difference that actually makes all the difference. As the gospel advances, it emboldens the word of our testimony, and here's the two key pieces from verse 14. The first is they became confident, not in themselves, Not in themselves. They became confident in the Lord. Paul lays this out for us clear as day. 
He's saying the gospel is on the move. The gospel is on the move. It's like a, it's like a lion running at full speed through the countryside, and it's having an effect that as people see the gospel advancing, they become confident in the Lord. It's like C.S. Lewis's books, The Chronicles of Narnia, where Aslan begins running through the countryside, and he's breaking the curse that has enslaved the people of Narnia for, for years and years and years. And the snow is melting, and the ice is melting, and the curse is melting. And those who had become uh, entombed within the curse are being set free. And what did the children do? They grab hold of Aslan. Is Lucy jumping, or is Aslan jumping? Both. But Lucy's confidence is not in Lucy. Lucy's confidence is in Aslan, our confidence is in the Lord. This is the absolute opposite of arrogance. Arrogance declares, I'm confident in me, or we're confident in us. The gospel declares within us, I'm confident in Jesus. We're confident in him. Of how Martin Luther put it, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amidst the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Well, I'm glad you asked. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age, the same. And he must win the battle. So we're confident in the Lord, our mighty fortress. And the second key piece of verse 14 is that Paul writes, we are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Notice what he says there, more bold. It's not that we weren't bold before, but that as we see the gospel advance, guess what? It keeps producing. We keep hearing this theme, it's producing. Last week it was abounding love. This week it's abounding boldness. It keeps producing things in us. We're becoming more bold. But more bold to do what? To speak the word without fear. Here we are again. First things first, our ABCs, never moving past the gospel. And so here we are again. Paul says to speak singular, the word. He didn't say the word of God. Like he does elsewhere in his letters, the the word of God. He could have said that. He said the word. It's shorthand for him of the gospel. The, the proclamation of the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Speak the word. As the gospel advances, it emboldens the word of our testimony, Paul says, and that word is the gospel, the good news. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph Through us, the prince of darkness grim, Martin Luther didn't write that part. I added it in for effect. (laughs) We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And what's that one little word? The gospel. I think of Revelation 12, 11. says, Christians have conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Praise God. So as the gospel advances, we see, reverses the designs of the enemy, 
It emboldens the word of our testimony. And lastly, it crystallizes what really matters. Paul lets us in here on a situation that was developing in the region around him, a region around where he was imprisoned. Verse 15, he writes that some, some people, indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter, the ones who are doing it from goodwill, do it out of love, knowing I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former, the ones who do it from envy and rivalry, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So Paul has to decide here what, what really matters to me, Paul. He has to have some inner dialogue while he's in prison thinking, possibly tempted to be stewing over this situation in the church. What really matters? What matters most? Some are preaching Christ for the right reasons, with the right motives, with the right spirit of partnership in the gospel. Some, for some reason, are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons, with the wrong motives, and with the wrong spirit of envy and rivalry. It's comforting sometimes to know that since the beginning of the church, the church has had to deal with difficult situations. There's nothing new for the church. We're in good company. Awkward situations. And in some instances like this, situations that can, if they're not handled correctly, could result in a church split. You may have been a part of churches where situations like this happen. Some people are motivated by this and some by that and some by this. So by that, we have to decide when, when facing and managing conflicting motivations in the church like Paul was having to do, we have to decide what really matters. And Paul responds here once again, thank you, Paul, loud and clear, big and bold, no mistaking him. What's his response when some people are preaching Christ for the right reasons while some are preaching Christ for the wrong reasons? What's his response? He starts off with two words in verse 18. What then? What then? So what? He's saying, big deal. Saying, who cares? Verse 18 again, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice. That's what matters. As the gospel advances, it crystallizes what really matters. And all that really matters is that Christ is proclaimed. Sometimes the Bible can be hard to understand. We know that. Other times it can be clear as day. And right here, and for us right now, it couldn't be any more clear. The only thing that matters for the church, our only agenda, our one agenda that overrides all other agendas, our song, our banner, our prayer, is that in every way, Christ would be proclaimed. Now, let me take a moment now and help us think this through practically. So, two things. First, Paul is talking, once again, to the church, about the church, about teachers inside the church who are preaching the gospel, preaching the truth, preaching Christ, some with the wrong motivations. Paul is not talking about false teachers here. He's not talking about heretics here. He's not saying, well, some people are preaching a false gospel and some people are preaching the true gospel. No, Paul is addressing here is an interesting situation of two camps who are both preaching the gospel. Paul will deal elsewhere in this letter and in other letters quite strongly 
with those who distort the gospel, with those who add to the gospel, with those who preach a false gospel. He has very strong things to say to those sorts of false teachers. So this verse is not talking about false teachers. He's not saying, well, the message doesn't matter. You know, in fact, he's saying the opposite. He's saying the message of the gospel actually does such a good job of advancing on its own that since Paul is in prison and can't deal with some of these pesky people face to face, he can trust God. He can trust in the power of the gospel that even if, even if some people are preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons and with the wrong motivations, God, because he's the master reverser, because he's the God of rathers, can still use those people for his purposes. So Paul doesn't have to worry. Okay, second, Paul really only truly cares that Christ is proclaimed. And this is such a dominant desire for him that it doesn't allow him to foster the same kind of envy and rivalry he sees out there. So he's in prison and, he, and, he, and he's hearing about the envy and rivalry that's starting to threaten the unity of the church around him. If Paul is not careful then, he could respond to that envy and rivalry out of his own envy and rivalry. But two wrongs don't make a right. Envy and rivalry will destroy a church. In Galatians 5.21, Paul says envy is a work of the flesh. In Romans 1.29, Paul says that envy is evidence of a debased mind. So for the people of God, saved and rescued by the grace of God, purchased by the Son of God, filled with the Spirit of God, made into the church of God, few things are more destructive for the body of Christ than envy and rivalry. So Paul says, let's have none of that. The only thing that matters, brothers and sisters, he's saying in the church, the only agenda the only sign on the only bus is that Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So the gospel crystallizes what matters. A quick application for us. And just for the sake of this example, I'm just going to use local churches about five, ten miles from us in our local diocese as a small sample, okay? So when it comes to our relationship, Truro's relationship, and our heart towards other churches, we are not different franchises. It's not like we're Chick-fil-A, they're Wendy's, the other one is McDonald's, and we all kind of want to one-up one another, kind of competing for the same zip code areas, same cities, trying to perform better year over year. Rather, we are all one body. We are all the church. The Church of the Apostles, just a few miles down the road, past Wegmans, they're not our rivals. Church of the Epiphany in Herndon, not our rivals. All Saints Woodbridge, Restoration Anglican, Christ Church Vienna, the Falls Church Anglican, they are not our rivals. They are our beloved partners in the gospel. And even if, it's a big if, because it's not remotely true, not even, not even remotely true, but even if, they were preaching Christ out of some kind of envy and rivalry or selfish ambition, what should our response be? Imagine with me, purely hypothetically, that, that Sam Ferguson, 
the rector of the Falls Church Anglican, who's a great friend of mine. He and I sat next to each other yesterday, the bishop election. We text often. He's wonderful. So, and I told him I was going to use him as an example. And he said, what? So imagine that Sam Ferguson, rector of the Falls Church Anglican, snuck out here one Saturday night, cover of darkness. And he puts a, a sign out front of Truro. And the sign says, tired of having a rector without much hair? Um, give the false church Anglican a try. How should I respond? Well, first I'd say, come on, Sam. That's not very nice. Uh, even it's a little bit true, but uh, come on. But I'd have to agree with Paul. I'd have to say, well, what then? Who cares? So what? All I care about is that Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. We are not rivals with one another. We have no reason to be envious of one another because as the gospel advances, it helps crystallize for us what really matters. And the only thing that matters is that the name of Jesus is exalted, that the name of Jesus is lifted high, that Jesus is proclaimed above all earthly powers, above all man-made kingdoms, and above all other agendas, and above all of our egos. Christ is proclaimed, him and him alone, and in that we rejoice. This is the power of the gospel. That as the gospel advances, it reverses the designs of the enemy, it emboldens the word of our testimony, and it crystallizes what really matters. And let's remember how this gospel was proclaimed to us in the word of God that came down and was made man. How this gospel broke through in the darkness of a night in Bethlehem. How this gospel came and dwelled with us and how Jesus got on his knees and washed dirty feet. Remember how this gospel was proclaimed to us on a cross of crucifixion, how it reconciled us to God. Remember how this gospel was proclaimed to us in an empty tomb. This gospel can't be hindered. This gospel can't be contained. Nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. No chains, no barrier, no opposition, no circumstance. So we can just let goods and kindred go this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. So I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me and what has happened to you and what has happened to us has really served to advance the gospel. And in that, we rejoice. Amen? Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, would you please set your gospel loose in this place, in this church, through this church, in this city, in this nation, around this world. Help us to hang on to you, Lord, as you do that. Give us your heart, oh Jesus. By your spirit working in, in us and in this place, give us your heart. We pray above all things, above all other names, above all other agendas, that the name of Jesus would be proclaimed. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.